I've often said Satan is never so active as on Sunday mornings. And um, especially if you have small children in the house, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, even without small children this morning, Sally and I just had one of those mornings. It's just unbelievable. Well, anyway. Um, I want to say two or three things before we begin to talk about this message. First of all, I want to just add a hearty amen to the things that Amy said. Um, when I was in seminary, a, a man that taught me Christian education said one day about scripture memory, he said, you will find that your ability to memorize scripture changes significantly about age 45 because the plasticity of your brain begins to change somewhat. Um, and I thought at the time, I was in my 20s, you know, that won't happen to me. <laughs> Guess what? Uh, it does. And so uh, if you're somewhat past 45, you'll have to work pretty hard. But I'm saying this mostly to encourage you to start early, okay? Um, secondly, I want to thank you for uh, praying for my um, recovery from my knee uh, surgery and um, making nice progress and... I still can't see the finish line, but that's okay. I'm making progress. Thirdly, and this is pretty unusual for me, I want to ask you to pray for somebody that you do not know and you will not know until you get to heaven. Um, a friend of ours named Susie, S-U-S-Y, Varghese, or Varghese, uh, she's a native of India. I met her in seminary, you know, 150 years ago. And Susie is dying. Um, and uh, she has a, uh, I don't know, ovarian cancer or something. And um, I think it's possible that Susie will die alone in a hospital fairly far from home. It just bothers me. And I don't know why it bothers me so much, but it does. And um, I'm going to ask you to pray for Susie. You'll never meet her at this side of glory, okay? She's in, in Kerala, uh, in southwestern um, India. And um, when she goes to the hospital, she has to go a long way from home. And um, as far as I understand, she goes alone and goes back alone. And I don't know exactly what's going on right now. But if, if you want to, if you, if, listen, I know everybody's got more things to pray for than they have time for. But anyway... All right, um, if you'd open to Luke 19, okay? Um, just a minute, I'll get it together. Um, we're going to look at this text under the heading, Jesus' Mission. Um, with whom are we to seek to build the church? You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's true. He is building his church, but he's not doing it by us sitting on our duffs and twiddling our thumbs. He is using human instruments that are empowered by him. So the question arises, with whom would Jesus build the church? Or with whom should we seek to build Jesus' church? And there are a couple of answers you could give. 
And the most standard answer, and not altogether bad, is that Jesus wants to build a church with people like us. Right? I mean, that's just standard answer. It's frequent answer. And it's okay answer if we know who we are. Sometimes people do, sometimes they don't. A better answer to the question, with whom would Jesus build the church, is the same sort of people that we see in the Gospels Jesus building his church with. But who is that? Well, God willing, we'll see. And this story, um, Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus in the first 10 verses, is profoundly important, um, I think, for CVP and every PCA-type church, uh, given who we tend to be um, in the socioeconomic spectrum. We're not where we ought to be in that regard, but where we are makes this, I think, a very important uh, text for us. So let's pray uh, and ask God to help us, okay? Father, uh, thank you for giving us a word, uh, giving us um, a light to bring us out of the darkness uh, in the Old Testament, you said uh, to your people once, you're really worried about the famine of food, but you told them if they didn't change their ways, you'd send them a famine of hearing the word of God, which you considered the very serious famine. And Father, I pray that since we have it, we'll memorize it and read it and apply it and use it as you intended and so fill us with your spirit now uh, to those ends and use uh, a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 19, beginning at verse 1, I remind you we believe that the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through... And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of statue. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to, to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. So let me introduce this saying something about Jesus, something about Jericho, something about Zacchaeus as we ease into the text. Um, some of you will know that there is a real turning point in Luke's gospel at chapter 9, verse 51. 
um, and 52 and 53. I'm going to just read those three verses. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is for him to die, be buried, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some of the old translations say he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations from him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So it's a real turning point. From now on, Jesus will be headed to Jerusalem to that last Passover at which he would institute the Lord's Supper. Um, If he had been in a covered wagon, it would have said on the side, Jerusalem or bust, you know? I mean, that's what was going on. And and if you read from Luke 9, 51 uh, uh, to this point, uh, from time to time, it mentions he's on the way to Jerusalem. In, in uh, chapter 17 at verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem. In chapter 18, verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho and was passing through. When he gets to Jerusalem, he will die. And he knows that. He will die as a substitute for his people. Uh, He lived for them, perfectly keeping the law. Soon he will die for them on a tree. And his purpose is to redeem a people for himself. But what sort of people? Whom does he seek? Something about Jericho. It says he entered Jericho. Uh, Jericho was a very important city. It was about 15 miles from Jerusalem down in the Jordan River Valley. It's about 800 feet below sea level. It's hot. We were there in January, uh, and it was hot in January. Um, uh, It had been developed significantly under Herod the Great. Uh, It's a really different city uh, at this point in time than it was when the walls of Jericho came down under Joshua. It was, uh, you might call it a spa city. Uh, It was certainly a destination city. There was a lot of water there, a lot of agriculture there. Still today, if you drive uh, into into, uh, Jericho and go north, you'll be amazed at all the agriculture there in that part of the Jordan River Valley. It was a wealthy place because it was uh, located where there were some... uh, trade routes, uh, crossroads uh, there. Uh, It was a Roman regional tax center. Okay. So we got this wealthy city. Um, Jesus headed toward Jerusalem, passing through Jericho. And there's something here about Zacchaeus. Well, we know from his name he's Jewish, and it says he is a chief tax collector. Uh, Many of you will know about tax collectors, but just a little reminder, they contracted with the Romans to collect taxes. They were backed by the Roman military that often extorted uh, more than was due. And they were considered traitors by their own people and were universally despised. He's a chief tax collector. That means he's got a district, you know, and he's got other tax collectors probably under him like a salesman with a district and he gets a cut off of everything. And he says he was rich. He had money and possessions and could have, may have, lived large. But he was looked upon with disdain. 
He was a Bernie Madoff kind of a guy, you know, <laughs> that everybody learned to hate. But we know from verse 10, he's not only Jewish, he's not only a chief tax collector, he's not only rich. Verse 10 tells us that Zacchaeus is lost or was lost. He's lost his way in life. He can't figure it out. He can't put it all together. It might look like he's got it all together, but he doesn't have it all together. He's estranged and separated from God. He is estranged and separated from his countrymen. He is isolated. He is alone. His culture, his community reject him. He's on the outs with God too. He thought that money would afford for him the good life. He might have been an American, right? (laughs) He thought that money would afford him the good life. And no doubt money had been his functional idol because he'd given up so much to pursue it. He'd sacrificed for his idol. Idols are always takers. They always take from you. God is a giver. But when you, when, you, when you set up an idol, the idol says, give to me, give to me, serve me. Give me your time. Give me your energy. Give me your reputation. And Zacchaeus had been willing to give all of those things because he thought that money would satisfy his heart. But it didn't. I think that's a part of what's going here. When the rich young ruler, which is in the previous chapter, chapter 18, came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Keep all the commandments. And he listed all the commandments out except the one about covetousness. And, 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 and the rich ruler said, All these things I've kept from my youth. And in one of the versions of this parable, not the Lucan version, but in another one, it's the, the, the ruler says, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Why is my heart not settled and fulfilled by money? Because it can't. You're made in the image of God. Money can't settle your heart. Money can't give you a sense of connectedness to the world and to God and, and, and to your... Co- money can't do what money often promises to do. It had not, it could not, it would not satisfy the heart of a person made in the image of God. And I think it's possible at least, we we're not told really anything much about the psychology of Zacchaeus in this passage, but I think it's possible that he knew that money wouldn't work. So there are two groups of lost people here. There's Zacchaeus, who's going to find out that he is lost, and there's the self-righteous crowd that doesn't have a clue. (laughs) They don't have a clue that they're lost. Who's Jesus interested in? Well, he calls out to the type who think he would not be interested in them. And he passes by those who think he would be interested in them. And there's a great lesson in that. Let's look at the movements through the text. I mean, if you were setting this up at a small play, you'd have scene one, scene two, but anyway, the movements. Okay, so Zacchaeus climbed a tree. Now, um, when I was a kid, I climbed trees, but since I reached adulthood, I don't 
think I very often climb trees. Uh, maybe some of you do. You don't have to confess that right now. But um, maybe with my grandchildren on occasion. But most people, when they grow up, they quit climbing trees. I mean, I don't know all the reasons why, but we just tend to. So here it is in a parade atmosphere. I mean, Jesus is coming through, and he's got a following. He's going to Jerusalem. Uh, it gets bigger and bigger as he gets there. And when he comes over um, uh, the Mount of Olives and comes into Jerusalem, you know, that's when they had the, the, um, the, um, the palms on the ground. But, but he, Jesus is passing through, and he climbs a tree. It's really not adult behavior. And what he does, in, I think, in climbing the tree is damaging his dignity. He damages his dignity. No doubt he would have been ridiculed. Look at Zacchaeus! That old fool is up in a tree. You know, they would have mocked him, I think, if they saw him. I mean, it'd be kind of like a church picnic and a 72-year-old interim pastor gets out a hula hoop, you know, and starts it going. You think, what in the world? Why is this guy in a tree? But this humbled his pride, which is very important spiritually because maintaining dignity and maintaining pride keep many people away from Jesus Christ. They really do. All the disdain you get in culture from born-again Christians. You know, you've heard it, haven't you? Oh, well, they say they're a born-again Christian. Well, according to John 3, the only kind of Christian there is is a born-again Christian. And somebody says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again, they're certainly mistaken on their theology. They may be born again and not know they are. But they're certainly mistaken on their theology. But dignity and pride keep many people from Jesus. But here's the important thing, really important thing about his climbing the tree so he could see Jesus, is that climbing the tree got him past the self-righteous religious crowd. You see, this self-righteous crowd that he's behind and can't see over, they're keeping him from seeing Jesus. And the crowds out there continue to keep people from seeing Jesus. They believe a false gospel, you know. Be good and God will love you. And such crowds look down on sinners and keep them away from Jesus. You've got to find a way to get past the self-righteous crowd and get to Jesus. And I tell you who this is. This is the people who say, they come to church and they say, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. Because we're not very transparent about our brokenness and we're not very transparent about our sinfulness. And so people think, well, I'm the only sinner in the crowd. Well, you're really not, I can assure you. Uh, you're not, but you tend to think it. Because we put on the air, you might say, that we're good people. And Jesus is turned off with this self-righteous crowd. We're going to find out more about that. But let me, ask, let me give you one last thing on, the, on this point, and that is be careful, be careful about being angry with self-righteous people. Why is that? Because you can be self-righteous about being angry with the self-righteous. Right? I've known people like that. 
And they, oh, I'm, I'm really righteous because I know they're self-righteous. You've got to be careful there, okay? I think the proper response to people that are sinners is to weep. It's to weep. And when people get, well, let's just leave it there. So Zacchaeus climbed the tree. Then secondly, Jesus called to Zacchaeus. Now, at first glance, it's pretty rude, right? Hey, Zacchaeus, come on down, baby. I'm going to go to your house and have lunch with you. What? You don't invite yourself to other people's houses. Well, you do if you're Jesus, I guess. He could sure come to mine, you know, if he wanted to. At least I'd say that today. Hurry and come down. Authoritatively, he says, come down immediately. I'm going to go to your house. Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. This is irresistible grace at work. It's sovereign calling in action. I must stay at your house today. I must remain in your house today. I must abide in your house today. What does this indicate? Well, the first thing it indicates an interest in Zacchaeus that the crowd did not have. An interest in Zacchaeus that the crowd did not have. Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I want to have fellowship with you. I want intimacy with you. I remember the first time, I think it was the first time I went to Belize in Central America. Uh, we, a group of us from the church uh, went down to help a missionary named Tom Lacey. And uh, Tom was an <laughs> uh, old country boy from Kosciuszko, Mississippi, uh, but nice guy and a wonderful missionary. I mean, it's a, just the, the prototypical missionary story. When he went there first, he lived in a, in a, in a place with a a dirt floor and a thatched roof, you know. He got a, he got a house built later, but he started that way in, in the 70s or late 60s, which is kind of late for that sort of thing. So anyway, I still remember walking up to his house out in this little village called Cristo Rey, and uh, Tom says, come in the house. I didn't think a whole lot about it, although I remember my grandmother used to say that when I'd come to visit her when I was in college. Come in the house. And so we came in the house. We came onto the porch and we came on into the house. Only later did I realize not everybody came into the house. Not everybody got invited into the house. Uh, because to be in the house uh, pre presents a certain level of intimacy and fellowship and closeness. And Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, I want that kind of relationship with you. Come in the house. I'm, I'm going to come in your house. And it's very opposite the crowd's attitude. Jesus is going to have a meal with a known sinner, and in doing so, he's going to sully his reputation. And you know what? If you befriend sinners, you will sully your reputation too. I mean real sinners, known sinners, proverbial sinners. That's who Zacchaeus is. Notice that Jesus went to his home before he repented, in spite of his sin, that his love preceded the change of life, the repentance. Jesus sought him when he was a stranger. Those are important points, I think. So thirdly, Zacchaeus came down. He came down 
hurriedly. He came down obediently. He came down joyfully. Because nobody else wanted to come to his house. Yes, the Holy Spirit's at work. Because he thought Jesus would not be interested in him. No one else was interested in him. Are you like that today? You think Jesus would not be interested in me? I mean, he's God. He has all knowledge. He knows everything about me. He wouldn't be interested in me. That's not true. (laughs) That's a lie of the devil. He is interested in you. One of the lies of the devil is I'm so bad that Jesus wouldn't be interested in me. That's not true. Why do you think he thought that Jesus would not be interested in him? Because the self-righteous church crowd was not interested in him. Clear and simple. They're not interested in him and they represent God. They're the good guys. So surely God wouldn't be interested in me. And so the clear application is this. How will sinners know that Jesus is interested in them if we in the church are standoffish toward them? How will they know of his interest without our demonstrated interest that goes to them and reaches out to them? I thought one of the very interesting things about um, Evergreen Salem where I was interim is there was a, huh? El, not Salem, Beaverton, I'm sorry, Evergreen Beaverton, is there was a beautiful brokenness there. There were a couple of homeless or semi-homeless guys in the church. Um, they didn't really fit, you know what I mean? But let me tell you, Evergreen Beaverton needed them desperately. They needed people like It's a demonstration of what the gospel is, you see. Fourthly, the crowd reacted very self-righteously. It's pretty obvious of that. They grumbled, as they often did when Jesus befriended sinners. If you read in the beginning of Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The comment here is, this man has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And now the application here, excuse me, the implication here is that Zacchaeus is a sinner or a really bad sinner, and we're not. Uh, One of the ways that Protestants are most like Roman Catholics is we have gradations of sin, you know. There's serious sin and non-serious sin, right? And and there's certain (laughs) spins on certain parts of Roman Catholic theology that would say, well, there's serious sin and non-serious sin. But Protestants are like that too. Serious sin, that's your sin. Non-serious sin is always my sin, right? We cut ourselves so much slack that way. And so they think, well, Zacchaeus is a serious sinner, a big sinner, a bad sinner, a bigger sinner than they are, but we're not serious sinners. They don't know their need, that they are spiritually lost. R.C. Lucas, Dick Lucas, that was uh, rector, I guess, at a, at a Church of England, uh, St. Helen's Bishopsgate in London, uh, has a sermon on this uh, uh, text that I've listened to 
years ago, and the only thing I remember from his sermon is in a very British accent, he said, people grumble when rogues get religion. Well, they do. Here's a rogue getting religion, and, 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 and people grumble. Remember Chuck Colson? You remember the way he was treated by the press when he became a born-again Christian? He was vilified because a rogue got religion. And here a rogue is getting religion. The truth of the matter is Jesus is for rogues. Jesus is for the rogues. And so, fifthly, Zacchaeus is saved. He repented. He gave half his wealth to the poor. He repaid fourfold what he had taken fraudulently. And of course, the point there is grace changes us. It changes everything, and especially our idols. Jesus came to save Zacchaeus from sin, not to leave him in it. And, and it's clear he believed. That, that doesn't say in the text he believed, but it says Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. And we know from Galatians 3, verse 7, that those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. And I think clearly Jesus is saying that he's a man of faith. So the summary in verse 10 about Jesus' person and his purpose, that is his mission, is that he's the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man of Daniel 7. And his purpose is to seek and to save the lost. He takes the initiative, he seeks, he comes, he proactively comes to and he bypasses the righteous. He comes to save, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin and the presence of sin. And that's going on uh, in Zacchaeus' life. He's going to do that by means of his life and his death and his resurrection and pouring out the Holy Spirit. He came to seek and to save the lost, those who are in sin and without hope and without God in the world. Now listen carefully. The extent to which I believe that certain sinners are beyond the grace of God, and listen carefully because I think many of us, deep down, we think there's certain people we know. We know them at work. We know them in the neighborhood. We know them somewhere. The extent to which I believe that certain sinners are beyond the grace of God is to, the ex- it, it, to that extent I'm involved in four failures. Here, here, here's what they are. At least these four. If if I think someone's beyond the grace of God, the touch of God, the redemption of God, then I fail to understand God's purposes. He came to seek and to save the lost. Or secondly, I fail to understand God's power. He's able to save to the uttermost all those who call upon Him in faith. Or thirdly, I fail to understand the depth of God's love that He would care for people like that. Or fourthly, and perhaps more importantly in this text, I fail to understand my own sin and my own selfishness. And I must think that God is interested in me because I'm good and I'm better than that other guy. Is that you? You look at that person you think, well, surely they're beyond the grace of God. Surely they're too far gone. Dear friend, you were too far gone. I was too far gone. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And God made me alive. If you're a believer, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God made you alive. And that person you think is beyond the grace of God is just like you. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. But God can make them alive if you didn't believe that. You certainly wouldn't 
be an ambassador for Christ, as we spoke of in 2 Corinthians. So, in the end, the sinner is saved and the self-righteous are separated from Jesus. Are you a Zacchaeus? Well, then be sure of Jesus' interest in you and his offer to you. He would love relationship with you. Who are the Zacchaeuses in our lives, where we live, where we work, where we play, where we shop? How do we treat them? What does our reaction to them tell them about God and God's interest? Who does Jesus seek and save and build his church with? I will build my church, he said. He builds his church with the lost. He builds his church with those who are without moral hope. He builds his church with those like Zacchaeus. And we are mistaken sadly and badly if we think we can build the church that Jesus wants built by focusing on those who think they're good. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to seek and to save the bad guys, not the good. And that's good news if we know who we are. Let's pray. Lord our God, forgive us our pride. Forgive us our self-righteous arrogance. Forgive us for all of our sins that this text touches on. I pray that you would use us to build CVP into the church that you want with the kind of people you seek so that it will be a beautiful church, a testimony to your unfathomable grace. We pray through Christ our Lord.